Hi and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Michelle Byrne and I'm here with my co-host Dave Gibney and as always we'll be having a look at the weekend papers and stories from the week from a left perspective. The Week at Work is part of the Left Block um, and Political Education and Media Project and you can find more information and support us on patreon.com slash leftblockwithout a K. And this week on the show we're, guest, we're joined by a guest Seamus Farrell um, and Seamus is um, a very well-known uh, housing activist um, and is involved in CATU. Well, welcome to the show, Seamus. Thanks for having me. Not at all. And so there's been a lot going on, a lot of CATU going around um, in kind of social media, has been all over my social media this week anyway. Um, I was wondering if you tell the listeners um, about CATU and the work that you do, and um, perhaps then we can talk about some of the campaigns that we've been seeing this week in particular. Yeah, um, so... I'm uh, chair of a local CATU branch, the CATU Fisford Last Nevin in uh, Dublin 7 and 9. And um, I suppose CATU was started in November 2019, building off the back of kind of some of the grassroots housing groups that have been around in Dublin and Kildare and other parts of the country. So we kind of built uh, out kind of union, kind of merged union, trade union structure with a kind of housing movement try to get the best of both worlds together and um, so organize local branches uh, that vote and elect a committee um, and it's grown out very quickly over the last year from about 30 members uh, this at the start of 2020 to 900 now so there was obviously already an appetite because the housing crisis is so bad uh, tenants are being screwed over and um, community resources it's also a community union so we tackle things like a lack of community amenities public resources in local areas as well so this week has been a big one for two of those type of issues the eviction ban was threatened to be lifted it, there's a 10-day grace period so it actually ends on 23rd in five days but on the sunday we got an anti-eviction in the north inner city of dublin that we had to mobilize for so one of the landlords went in early uh day before he thought the eviction ban was ending with security and we had a six hour standoff where we eventually forced them to back down and get the tenant back in so that type of direct action mobilizing on the ground and then also co-living was approved in Fisbury shopping center so our local branch has a long kind of a four-month running campaign against co-living in dublin seven so that's a kind of a flashpoint for how do you develop the community in a way that benefits all of us, not a kind of speculative housing uh, investors. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I'd, I'd like to go back um, to the, the eviction that um, the cashier members got involved in. Um, could you tell us a bit about what happened and how that played out um, on the day? I know I've seen commentary online about, um, you know, the landlord's past as well and the, the interaction with the guards within the situation as well. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, it's uh, I'll do, keep it brief. You could go into it for a long time. But uh, there was one tenant uh, who lives in a kind of a bungalow house on a street, actually, where we have a good few members in that little block of um, kind of estate off Dorset Street. And uh, a cat member was walking by, seeing uh, him taking all the stuff out of a house and private security in front of a house. And then she started texting into the local WhatsApp groups and uh, started mobilizing. He had basically had his door broken down at 11 a.m., um, the landlord and five heavies. And then at that point, the guardie arrived after we had probably mobilized about 10 or 15 people. Um, and they were keeping the peace, as is their standard line at the moment, using public order to say, we're not involved in this. It's a civil issue, but we're making sure nothing kicks off out in the street. Um, at one point, they closed off the area and threatened arrests to everyone. 
um, apart from the private security and the landlord who were inside. And they were quizzing the landlord on, after a little bit further along, they started quizzing the landlord, actually you haven't given proper notice. Um, you might need to rethink this. And um, what do you want us to do now? Um, so there was a lot of interaction when they said they're not interacting or not involved in the process. Um, and the guard sergeant was down as well. Eventually we actually were in, so we kind of forced a lot more pressure by going back into the house and making sure that if they had to remove everyone, they had to remove anyone, they had to remove everyone from the site, including the private security, the landlord, and leave just the tenant. That was kind of part of our tactical thinking on it. But eventually we brokered a climb down where the after six hours, um, the landlord agreed to um, leave and serve proper notice in his words. And I think it's only, we needed numbers with 15 or 20 people there. They, it was possible to hold that. When it was 50 people there, they were on the back foot. Before that, they were very secure in their ability to kind of intimidate the tenant and keep the morale down and make sure nothing else could happen. So it needed numbers to mobilize. And that's that was the advantage, it showed the advantage of kind of local community-based branches. There's two in that area, our Fibsborough one and Mount Joy, Dorset Street. So there's already 100 Katu members within, you know, less than a mile of the site. So that means that we just had the capacity to get numbers out very quickly and all the residents were supportive, even ones who weren't members. So yeah, and good social media as well. People were tweeting and kind of amplifying that as it goes. So it's kind of the best of the online and offline um, world. So yeah. Absolutely. I was following along live um, from all the communications that were going out and I found very interesting, you know, how the guards weren't uh, very up to date with what the regulations were around evictions and whether they should even be playing a part in them, as you, as you said, which is interesting. But yeah, like, as you said, um, the, the date, the 23rd of April is, is being, um, is being mentioned a couple of times around the date, but I suppose that's only if people have got proper notice um, issued that they have the 10 days from the eviction man lifted. But look, this is the first of many, I'm sure that we're, we're going to be seeing. And I know also that you've been doing a lot of work around the co-living stuff. Um, I Did I see you you did some sort of an action on um, where you, you recreated um, a co-living space to, to show people the size and the scale of what these builds are, very interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant one. I uh, A local lad who's in the union, who's a carpenter, I was like, let's just build it and uh, build the 12 square uh, meters, show the size of it and visualize it for people. And that was the protest uh, like the weekend before. And it's kind of creating the idea because it's trying to be sold as this like new, innovative, uh, really nice um, form of housing rather than a, basically a bed set, smaller than a bed set. And the viewers said smaller than a prison cell in Mount Joy, uh, which is only around the corner. So. Um, I think that visualizing was really helpful. And actually the head of MN Capital, who are the developers or the financial kind of uh, planners for who own the Fisbury Shopping Centre at the moment, they the head of that um, was tweeting in response, this is not what it's like. You also get a shared kitchen. You also get a bowling alley. You also get all of these other amenities. But then again, like if you want to build amenities, why can't everyone access that? We should, yeah, we should have a bowling alley in Fisbury, but that should be you know, something that everyone can go to. That shouldn't be a takeaway from the quality of housing that you're uh, providing. And yeah, it's also just incredibly profitable. They can put 10 uh, single bed sit units in at a thousand a month each, which is 10,000, rather than like a three bed apartment, which is about the equivalent floor space. So they're just able to, they're maximizing their profit. And it's like drives up land prices, drives up uh, rents in the area, reduces standards. It puts that pressure on more widely. So we think it's, 
it affects all of us locally. So, yeah, it's a good protest, I think, as well. Because on board Panola approved the co-living, there would be an automatic kind of demoralisation where people be like, we can't do anything now. But we see this as an ongoing community campaign. We have 1,300 signatures against it. We want to build on that and fight it all the way up to the construction phase and including direct action against the construction if that's uh, the angle we're going for. So uh, I think it's a long battle uh, ahead of us. Yeah, so much for this uh, co-living ban that we heard all splashed across the media at the end of last year. It was uh, all of those planning applications got in before uh, that ban was implemented. So we're only we're still seeing a lot of the fights against co-living um, over the last few months to try and try and um, it, like influence and trying to reject those those planning applications as well. And you, you mentioned the word direct action there as well. Um, It'd be interested in you teasing that out and how um, how CATI members use direct action as a form of um, campaigning because maybe not everyone would be familiar with with that. Yeah, I think it's it's a good it's a good question. It's like it's very practical, I think, because um, you can get very bogged down in individual casework as either a grassroots groups or as for example, like Threshold do good work, but they're reduced to like taking cases the RTB individually and need a lot of staff to do that. But we can kind of flip it and turn instead of a landlord going to the RTB for us, who isn't fixing something, we'll go, well, we're going to go and pick at the letting agency or landlord and demand that they fix it and give them a week or we continue escalating the tactics. So we've switched a lot to online direct actions like phone line pickets and um, kind of uh, downrating them online and kind of wrecking their uh, business reputation. Um, but now that if the pandemic hopefully continues the good progress that's been made and we're able to get back out again it's going to be a lot more of that kind of on the street pickets um and yeah sustaining that type of pressure so it's good it's a good tactic it's a good technique it's interesting to think of it moving to like something like co-living i don't think we've had that type of mass community direct action since the water charges um and moments in like strike for repeal or like around direct provision um but we haven't really seeing that kind of holding larger community picket lines and stuff and um, for a while so it'd be interesting to see that tactic being used yeah and it's been really interesting to see how you adapt to um the covid restrictions as well around like these phone call pickets where you're every all of the members are picking up the phone number to call a rogue landlord or everyone's picking up to to uh email in a um a property management company who aren't answering their their tenants um concerns it's been really interesting and i've participated in some of them myself so i've i've seen the results as well which is great and it's it's quite empowering as well to be able to take action during this and just as well that that piece around direct action like it, it does tend to get the results quicker and I know obviously like organizations like Threshold are doing great work and they serve a different purpose but it was really interesting when you mentioned like the RTB and even in that most recent case of the eviction how that specific landlord had already been through the had been brought through the RTB fined for an illegal eviction they, uh, in 2019 and was there again in 2021 doing another illegal eviction and having yeah. not having that fine deterred uh, hadn't deterred him at all through the RTB. So I think the the kind of the, the purpose of Kashi is becoming very clear um, as to the, some sometimes these systems like the RTB or the guards even are just not they're just failing us like they're not there and they're not working the way they should be. They look like they should be protecting us um, as tenants, but really they're not. Yeah. And if like it's a slow day said to the tenant on the day oh yeah, um, you can go take an RTB case on Monday after the weekend. But that means he was out. He would have to be evicted from wherever else he had to go where he didn't have anywhere to go. 
uh, he would then have to take an RTB case, which would take months, and the landlord, he could win in six months some compensation, and also the landlord doesn't pay a lot of the time. We've had landlords who just take it and drag it out for two years, three years, and don't pay the compensation, and the enforcement powers are kind of limited. But we had to hold the gaff there and then. And I think it's like, it's taken a little bit from trade, also kind of, I think it builds on good trade unionism that the union members support each other and back each other up. And then there's a sense of solidarity on the ground um, against, just as you would go against a rogue employer, you're going against these landlords as like, well, no, actually you can't be doing this. We need to put that type of discipline or pressure on you. I don't even think we have to be liked by any of the letting agencies or landlords or wider kind of groups we need they need to be afraid effectively of the union and afraid of their members and the tenants and anyone's going to stand up to them so i think that's a, a good lesson absolutely absolutely thanks for that Seamus and like that whole idea of solidarity as well like you know it got me thinking about during the week we we're seeing images kind of splashed on social media as well of strike breakers being um escorted into Debenham stores by the guards um so again we're seeing you know that that lack of solidarity obviously with with um strike breakers going in but the guards facilitating again what I would probably perceive to be non-essential work to be quite honest with you um yep. seeing these workers going into pack up stores uh, in the in the middle of industrial uh, dispute never mind but also when most retail is closed so um it is interesting we're seeing a pattern of the guards interacting in in things that they probably they shouldn't be doing you know they are they're guardians of the peace but are they really guardians of capitalism um i i'm probably more convinced of the latter at this stage uh, from some of the examples that i've been seeing um so maybe some people won't agree with me on that one between them and the private security standing side by side, both and you're you're right in a way they're both getting paid on the day to effectively facilitate a landlord, um and you know keep us out. Um, we were putting on, and it's, it was easier for us to put pressure on the private security and the locksmith to be like, you know, this isn't worth it for you. You're getting paid like four hundred quid for this day job. You thought you'd be in and out changing the lock, and um, you should never have taken this work. Do you know there is a bit of the old boycotting rule of like stuff that is. I suppose, dirty work that shouldn't be done. Um, and I think we'd be wanting to target the locksmiths and private securities to be not doing that type of work. And then we need to be able to put discipline and, you know, pressure on the guards. Um, if there is a, they say they're keeping the peace, but we could as easily call a community organisation, uh, a social worker or anyone else to talk about keeping the peace in the area. I don't think we need them. That Brendan Bean thing of them always making it worse seems to apply, and that's our experience on the ground, I guess. Yeah, it seems to be. Dave, do you have anything to come in on that? Yeah, just one observation on, on something you said there, just about you know, you can report this on Monday to the RTB. Like in any other scenario, how would that work? You know, someone goes in to rob a bank and the bank rings the guards, <laughs> the guards say, Well, report it on Monday, but the money will be gone on Monday. Yeah, but look, we'll go looking for it after the fact. You know, this person would be out on the streets having to figure out a way of making a complaint to the RTB while they're homeless. Like, it's absolutely mental stuff. Um, but I think that the work that Katu has been doing has been phenomenal, even just watching it on social media because I'm not involved myself. Um, but just on that note, I was, uh, and, and this is your attempt, your your offer to get the plug in. You know, can you tell people, you know, how they can find out more information about Katu, how they can join um, the union itself, and how you know to get active in it, um, and all that sort of any other information that you need to get out there for people. 
Yeah, uh, great question. Thanks for promoting the plug. Um, so uh, it's www.cat2ireland.org uh, forward slash join. So it's a similar to a trade union. You pay your dues based on what you're what you're able to afford. It kind of starts at a fiver and works its way up. Um, and if you can't afford that, you can kind of contact the union directly and talk about like more flexible dues and all. But um, there's a 12 local committees now. I think there's more springing up. So we have eight in Dublin, um, which is by more smaller areas, but also Cork, Belfast, Galway, um, as Michelle knows, Waterford, Kilkenny, um, Kildare, um, Limerick and Tipperary are all kind of getting organised. Um, if you join, you also can just, you get an email from the union to do a phone call, to have a chat about what you might want to do and do some basics um, of like what it's like to start organising as a union member. But normally involves just talking to people one-on-one uh, -on -one as much as possible and convince more people to join in your area. And then when you hit 15, you can launch a local group. And at that point, you've kind of got a representative on the union and you kind of get a bit more resources and support. So we're hoping just build it everywhere um, and it'd be that kind of lifeblood of self-defence for communities against this kind of uh, ridiculously bad housing and wider kind of community infrastructure problem we have. And it is feeding into a broader progressive, I think, change. People are seeing that they have power um, and that they can actually have some say in what happens in their area rather than being excluded and marginalised. So I think, um, yeah, it's got that kind of purpose, broader purpose too. And just a quick one as well. Has there been any interaction with the, um, for want of a better phrase, official trade union movement? Like, have you been, has there been any talks with them or discussions with trade unionists about um, any of the getting active or support or any of that sort of stuff? Early days of it. I think it's starting um, more with local branches. I know someone, one of the members who's in Unite as well. So we have two staff at the moment who are both, I think, Unite members. So one of them gave a talk at the Dublin branch of it. Um, so we'd want to talk to, we talked to kind of teachers, the kind of teacher INTO reps in the inner city, in our local, because there's a lot of crossover. And... Um, I've been a trade unionist for years as well. Informal so far, nothing kind of formal. And uh, we're looking for like storage space and potentially an office as well. So like low, small things like that would actually probably help us. Um, but it grew so quick that we kind of just focused on the basics for the first year, I think. And now we're only starting to think about how we build um, some type of connection with the broader kind of trade union movement and um, kind of other struggles that are out there. Absolutely, absolutely. Um... That's great. Thank you so much for, for all of that. It sounds like it, there is a lot of exciting things going on there. And I know as well that a lot of the members would get involved in a lot of training as well. Like I know myself, I found it quite empowering being able to go to training about anti-evictions or training about even door knocking at the time when we were allowed to do that. Um, and I think uh, for people who maybe have, maybe have not done anything like that, got involved in the union before, it's been very um, very supportive environment to learn for people who haven't um, before and to kind of give people the tools to organize in their own communities as well I think is really important. Um, so Dave I might um, head over to you and ask you um, have you been reading any what, what have you been reading on the front papers this week? Yeah some really interesting front pages this week actually um, I, the one I'll get to in a minute is the Sunday Business Post which is the one I, I, I read through in detail but uh, just on the front of the Sunday Times um, Archbishops attack ministers clandestine, ba clandestine ban on mass sorry I shouldn't snigger or laugh but um, 
the next one is Gardy question Varadkar over leaked contract. And this is the, the really interesting one because this is on a couple of the front pages. Um, and it, it, they've done a really, it's it, the article's by John Mooney, right? It's on the front page. I've had a quick read of it. Um, and it's talking about how, I don't know whether this was John Mooney himself, the journalist, or whether the Sunday Times done this investigation, but they've gone through all of Varadkar and, if you remember, Matthew O'Toole, um, who the whole scandal is about, Varadkar leaking a document to uh, one of his buddies uh, who was in the process of trying to negotiate, well, they were in the process of trying to negotiate a, a contract with the state. Um, but they've gone through all their old Twitter accounts uh, to see all the retweets and, and shares of, of different things on social media between the two, which is really interesting, you know. Um, I believe they're not friends anymore anyway because of some of the stuff that's come out since. But uh, yeah, so it, I, what I found most interesting was that Varadkar was interviewed under caution by detectives. So this isn't an informal thing. This is a very formal thing. So our Tanishta, I'd say it's the first time ever that a Tanishta has been someone in such high office has been formally investigated um, by the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation and still maintain their seat. And it's incredible that there's no uproar other than on the left, really, about this, um, that the, the mainstream parties appear to be quite silent about it and not not bothered. And maybe they they have skeletons in their closet. And sometimes you find this that they don't want to be over overly critical because they know perhaps they may, may get caught out for something similar in the, in the very near future. So maybe that's it. And then the last story on the front page of that is uh, on, on the Times is Queen mourns alone as she bids Duke farewell. Uh, I'm not even going to bother getting into that one. Um, I, I had a read of the, the front of the Sunday Times as well. And yeah, yeah, the, the Queen mourns one is interesting. And then four and a half, four more pages inside for you to read in this 22 page publication. And um, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on about there. So I think they've given enough p- uh, space for it there. I'm not sure we'll give more airtime to it here. But going back to um, what you were saying around the the the, the Bradker story, um, it, it also says that the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation does say that the nature of the friendship is irrelevant, Dave. So, you know, don't, they're not taking that into consideration. Um, so whether they're publicly decrying that neither of them are friends anymore on Twitter or whatever. But it is a really interesting comment that you're saying around, you know, why aren't other parties speaking up about this? Are they afraid? Or is it is it the power of the coalition that they're, you know, they're afraid that they're... they're yeah, it's just, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. But like, it is quite laid out like that, People, they're being quite frank about it, but because they're being so frank about it, it's almost like, oh, well, because they're saying everything so frankly, it, it doesn't seem to be a problem. But like, I'm reading it going, this is a problem. Like, this, why isn't this a problem that you knowingly gave contracts? And yeah, and it is very interesting that he hasn't had to step aside. Like anyone else who was under investigation in any other job would very likely have to um, have to step aside in some way um, in relationships. It's very, yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, but we're expecting to see um, something come out in the next couple of weeks anyway, it says, from the P- Public Prosecution's Office. So I suppose we'll report on it then when it, when it comes out. Um, and just, I, I don't know if you want to spend a bit of time, uh, Dave, on that piece around the Archbishop's attack, but on the, on the ban on mass. Um, I actually, I had, a lot, I had a few thoughts on it myself uh, when I was reading. Um, so the, there's four bar- archbishops taking legal advice um, after the, the ban on mass at the moment. And described it as breach of trust um, because the government and the religious, um, the Catholic church should have trust between each other after everything that's been happening in the last whatever amount of time. 
around institutional abuses and all of that but um at this at the same time like just even because obviously I, I love to bring the local element to the show like in Washford like we're we're seeing like we're seeing protests happen outside um the the uh, one of the anti-lockdown protests is outside the cathedral here there was also uh protests um sorry there was masses being held outside one of the doctors uh that provide abortion in Waterford and um, we're seeing like I think there was actually fines given out for that already and um, we're seeing and we're seeing the uh, same characters are holding mass outside doctors clinics also going around giving around anti-lockdown information so like it's kind of hard to not have to say it explicitly to some some of the community who are involved in kind of religious activity when you're seeing a lot of links to the anti-lockdown um, kind of information that's been handed out, when you're seeing people coming out, coming out around, you know, like I'm not saying, I'm absolutely not saying like that that applies to everyone. I'm just saying from my my observations here in Waterford, there's a lot of links, and I know some other people might think the same, but I don't understand why they think um, that them having a ban on on this is they're saying it's in breach of their rights but there's a lot of things that have to be considered here when it comes to the health restrictions and a lot of people are feeling that some of the rights that they had before are you know it, it's kind of hazy when you bring in the health the right of people's health as well in all of this and um, but it was just interesting that's literally the top story of the sunday times is talking about this ban of mass like is it like <laughs> We have a lot of other things to be talking about. And no, like, obviously not at all, but like the front page, really, like. Yeah, and, and look, I don't mean to be too dismissive about it. People can have their beliefs and all the rest of it and practice their religion and nobody wants to get in the way of, of that. It's how the story is presented and how sensationalized they've made it. Like this last sentence on that front page and the articles by Justine McCarthy, none of us want to be breaking the law. And we know this has been a very difficult time for Gardy and government. But it is wrong to be criminalizing worship in what is meant to be a free democratic country. They're not criminalizing worship. You can still worship. You can worship from wherever you want. You just can't go to mass to worship. Um, and, and part of me is asking the question, you know, because we read, I, I think I read it, an article recently, a couple of weeks ago, about the donations, the buckets that they pass around at, the, at mass. Part of me is asking the question, is that the real problem here? Uh, you know that the church is suffering so badly financially that they want people back in in the churches so that they can make a few bob out of it uh, uh, you know it's a it's almost a capitalist system that they run there perhaps they'd like to set up um a gofundme or something to try fill fill the, the gap and there's also a line in it as well where they said they're going to be calling on the church the churches to reopen anyway if the ban is lifted on made fourth so they're going to they've said they're going to defy whatever rules are coming into place um, but I actually found it quite interesting was most of the article is all about the Catholic Church. But what about the other the other religious denominations? Like we're in the middle of Ramadan. If if anyone yeah. has an argument to be making a front page story about this, perhaps the fact that Ramadan is on right now, might, people might have some thoughts about that. Um, and it, there is literally one short line mentioned in this in this whole article. Of, it's, that it's not that. about religion. It's about Catholic uh, kind of supremacy's role in the state and its ability to kind of be above the standard uh, rules and regulation and get a special spot. I find it interesting that's kind of uh, like Youth Defence and Opus Dei in an organised fashion, you know, they've been the strong basis of Conservative, the right, like to the right of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil for generations. They've obviously been weakened and that, and Repeal's victory was really like weakening of them. But I find that the church on that end uh, the conservative basis for some of these actions uh, 
anti-lockdown, kind of anti-public goods, anti-public need, um, a kind of very, uh, the church above health care isn't a, isn't an alien concept. If I think, and then if you take the church as an organised force and kind of the right wing of the church, and then also small businesses kind of pushing on their line about we need to reopen, they're kind of, to me, the more organised end that are not uh, the conspiracy theory end of the far right. They're the kind of danger, can be quite dangerous, to be honest, as a kind of bit of more of a muscle. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a disgrace, really, you know? Absolutely. Is there any other um, stories there that you're reading, Seamus, that you'd like to chat about? Um, the Irish Independent um, I have in front of me, and they obviously have Leo's story um, big, and then they have... A weird Brendan O'Connor piece about Dr. Leo, one of those kind of another cheerleader, to be honest. Cheerleader, it's all about optimism or pessimism. It's not about, you know, well-being or anything else. It's kind of this very flippant commentary about, uh, and personalised commentary about, are we, aren't we going towards a better, you know, uh, end to the pandemic. Um, he's been one of the cheerleaders in a long time for kind of opening out uh, and, to be honest, putting people at risk. And they have the Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin must come clean, which is kind of a uh, shock. And uh, I can be critical myself of Sinn Féin and some of the politics, but it's kind of incredible to have this actually very serious criminal investigation uh, on one end. And then the fact that Sinn Féin have a database that they use to organise being so controversial. Um, it's great. It's kind of whipping up conspiratorial. I think it's part of that kind of the left is some type of malice outside the state that's coming for you and Sinn Féin are kind of the head honchos of that so uh, it's also incredibly partitionist because some of the stuff is why should people in the north be deciding what happens in the south so I find that type of thing incredible uh, and you know the fact that young people potentially emigrate to Germany and continue to be involved in Sinn Féin and continue to manage Facebook accounts uh, you know they emigrated. That's what you did with your economic policies. Um, I yeah, I think it's it's the usual. I think it's also part of the reason Leo isn't going because they're afraid. It's kind of becoming that Fine Gael versus Sinn Fein battle, and they're afraid they don't want to weaken Fine Gael. So they seem to be keeping Leo, um, which hopefully comes back to haunt them. Um, if particularly if that investigation gets worse. Can, can I just jump on that one in on that one because there's an article in the Business Post which is. Um... A very serious article but very funny in the same uh in the same way like it's a um, is Sinn Féin's Ab Abu database a step into dangerous territory and the whole article almost uh, half of the article is about Nazi Germany and how Nazis uh, developed a database um a very sophisticated database and, and and like even a quote here it's no coincidence that data protection law was invented in Germany in the late 1960s and 1970s um, and I, Maria Farrell, an Irish consultant and writer on tech policy, um, <laughs> there are very good historical reasons why we call some data politically sensitive and, and give it extra protection. Like, and what you're saying there is really interesting, you know, about what Sinn Féin have, which is a database, which every party has. <laughs> like, if you're telling me that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil don't have a database, well, why the hell do I get constant emails off them after I send the petition in through Uplift or something else? It's not like my the emails stop. They don't just respond to one issue. I'm constantly getting Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael. So am I on a secret database? I must be, but I'm not, you know, comparing it with Nazi Germany, um, which which it's it's farcical. And this stuff is just, 
because it's so over the top, it does lead to that conspiratorial stuff. It feeds into the far right. It makes people paranoid when there's nothing to be paranoid about. And like you, Seamus, I'm critical of Sinn Féin on an awful lot of things. Um, this one just seems like a, a, a ridiculous one. Um, and I, I'm a bit annoyed about it, to be honest. Um, but, but the, you know, they, they really care about data protection in this case, but they don't care about data protection when Leo's leaking documents. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, you know, it's really, it's, just a, it's completely political scoring, like trying to create this shady figures of Sinn Féin narrative that they've, they're trying to create, like create this, this whole narrative about. And I really have to commend them for their skill set in being able to turn everything bad about Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil somehow about Sinn Féin. Like, you'd wonder, and I know there was a poll that came out this morning that I think saw Sinn Féin ahead of um, Fianna Gael in the polls, but, like, you'd wonder at the constant repetition of Sinn Féin's name in the media. Like, I, I genuinely, honestly think that Fianna Gael are doing themselves a disservice because they're probably giving Sinn Féin more um, promotion than Sinn Féin can ever could be ever thankful for. But but I, I think that might be part of Fine Gael's strategy is they want a two-party system because they're they're going to wipe out Fianna Fáil. Like, they're, they're sucking up all those votes. And um, in order to do it properly, they're going to have to have, um, a, you know, a, a, a really dark enemy. And the dark enemy is Sinn Féin. Yeah. Um, and people, when, when the likes of Fine Gael are constantly out criticising Sinn Féin, nobody's talking about Fianna Fáil. Um, you know, that, that poll was interesting. I have it here. So Sinn Féin are down four points to 27%, but they're still ahead of Fine Gael, who are down one point to 26%. It's in the Irish Mail on Sunday. Um, some really interesting and scary, eh, scary is probably the wrong word, but, uh, you know, difficult fucking things to, 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 to expect out of this. So Fine Fáil are up two points to 16%. I mean, the Taoiseach, the leader of our, <laughs> our country's party is... Um, at 16%, like it's it's farcical. Uh, and then, but Sock Dems are 6%, Labour 5%, Green Party 3%. This is where it's a bit strange. Ain2, 4%. And then Solidarity People Before Profit, 3%. So Ain2 are after going ahead of People Before Profit and, and Solidarity, which is a bit of a worry, you know. Obviously, I'm, I'm not a member of any political party, but, well, you know, I think... We, we would do better from having the likes of Solidarity People Before Profit um, ahead of aim to when it comes to progressive left-wing politics. So it's something to, to keep an eye on. Independents are at 10% and you can never read into that because that can be independents who are conspiratorial or it can be independents who are good left-wing ones like Thomas Pringle. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting poll anyway. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And then I was looking at the comment section in the, the Sunday Times as well and there's a piece actually about the Greens too and it says Greens need to step up their heads in the game and essentially it's a it's a green hate piece <laughs> um, but then in the middle of it it kind of like yeah so it, it talks about um, how Joe Bryan junior minister has wrote to the Department of Finance uh, proposing a one-stop solidarity tax on high earners and firms that were highly profitable during the pandemic so um, the, the the writer actually it's not there's not a named um, person on who wrote this this particular comment um, but yeah it goes on that to say you know that the idea of a temporary tax to reduce social inequalities that have been um been made uh, worse by COVID-19 was float, float this month and then it's, uh, it goes on to say you know like these once off taxes have a way of becoming permanent um, but like I'd, I'd have no problem with the uh, wealth tax becoming permanent I don't know about you it's like it's, it's, it's like that whole thing of like conservatives threatening us with a good time like this is actually this article that he's written is designed to be like a hate piece against the greens and how dare they suggest that we bring in a wealth test a tax that might 
stick around for good. Oh, the horror. Um, but it does go on then to talk about like, you know, oh, it's just, it was just a social media, it was just a social media stunt and it was leaked to the media and, you know, how dare they suggest something like this that might gain a popular support that we would bring in attacks like this. Um, but then they go on to like lambast uh, uh, the Greens p- uh, position on CETA actually. Um, it talks about how great CETA is because um, a guy they invited into the committee in the EU Affairs Committee during the week, uh, which I was watching myself actually, from the, the Irish Canada Business Association, who absolutely have no uh, benefits from CETA obviously coming into effect. And um, basically there was loads of CETA lobbyists and investor court lobbyists being put before our politicians um, in this committee. And uh, it's just been interesting to watch that play out. I know um, Lynn Boyland and Alice Mary Higgins have been very strong on you know, pointing out the links uh, to the, the speakers who are being invited into the committee. Um, but this article just ends up talking about how great CETA is, apparently, according to them. So I, can t- I think you can tell um, the political position of the writer, despite not knowing the name of the writer of this um, opinion piece. And it goes on to say how, like, how dare the Greens uh, go on a solo run and uh, with Patrick Costello challenging um, the CETA deal as to whether it's uh, in the courts, you know, as to whether they should be voting on it or not. But it's just very interesting This this particular, it turns, it's a kind of a hate piece against the Greens, but then turns into a kind of, you know, conservatives threatening us with a good time with wealth tax and then goes into this big CETA, lo- like pro CETA lobby. So I would be interested to know who wrote that piece, but yeah, it ties into that whole, you know, we're, we're, we, we keep talking about the Greens and how they're kind of split, splitting themselves up a little bit into different pockets of politics, uh, whether solo runs or otherwise or leaving or whatever it is. But yeah, uh, Fianna Fáil are obviously going down. And yeah, Dave, you want to come in on that? Yeah, no, just on uh, going back a step just to the solidarity tax one. And, and one of the reasons we set up um, the Week of Work podcast, this podcast, and as well as that left block was because of the influence of the mainstream media. And we see this all the time. There's an article in the Business Post, a solidarity tax would be a step backwards. And the article is written by Brian Keegan, who happens to be a director of public policy at Chartered Accountants Ireland. And again, it's it's all it's how coordinated these things happen. Someone says, well, why don't we have something progressive? And all of a sudden, newspapers are flooded with this is why it won't work and this this can't happen. And, you know, he, he actually makes that reference as well that you mentioned that there's nothing more uh, permanent than a temporary taxation measure. Uh, and again, what's the problem with having a permanent solidarity tax, which, you know, he, he, again, we, well, I don't know what it is this week, but they're comparing everything to Germany. They're talking about when when um, the wall came down and they brought in a solidarity tax that's still there about bringing East Germany up to West Germany's standards, all that sort of stuff. So but um, but yeah, it, it's it's fascinating to watch the mainstream media at play when someone moots something that might be slightly progressive and help people out of the stuff we spoke about at the start, the housing crisis, you know? Um, so, you know, it, it's it's a little bit frustrating. And then you mentioned the Green Party. Um, there's another article in here, and I'm, I'm wondering what the Green Party are actually doing in government. Uh, but again, it's, a, it's another one saying, um, Quanta acquires 82-acre data centre site in Dublin. And this is a... 700,000 square foot data center. 700,000 square foot. What was your um your co-living space? 12 square. 
<laughs> so this is them. <laughs> so they can definitely build a little bit bigger when you hear this. They, they, yeah, they, exactly. They're, <laughs> they're after getting planning permission for this data center. And again, it's in Dublin. And we've spoken about this over and over again, how these data centers op- opening all over Dublin um, are sucking both energy, like one third of our energy by 2027 is going to be going into data centers, and our water which one data center alone is using more water than the entire town of Dundalk, right? So this is why we're spending over 2 billion euros moving the Shannon to Dublin, redirecting water from the Shannon so that they can cool these data centers. So what the hell are the Green Party doing in government when all of this stuff is still happening? Data centers popping up to beat the band. There's 36 of them already in play and dozens more in the planning process and nobody's batting an eyelid. Instead, it's all about how, you know, me and you have to 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 lower our um consumption levels uh, of both water by the way that's what the water charges thing was about but also of all of our energy uh, and everyone just turns a blind eye to these dozens of data centers of 700,000 square foot open across the country it feels like the greens survival is dependent on them just having a few niche things that they can put down on their election literature for next time it's a year in and they're already like well we won on the idea of a solidarity tax and we got these three other small things for you and then they're going to just the environmental crisis is going to get substantially worse and uh, like the, the data center is an incredible one like that should be their ball game to be like well actually planning wise it's an unsustainable development um both in terms of its concentration in dublin it's not there's no regional development there and also just its overuse of energy water everything without providing any jobs and uh it's it's that should be like 101 for them but they're just such neoliberals it's incredible like they're just god i was going to say seamus i think you're being a bit optimistic assuming that all the green party are going to support um a solidarity tax as the the commentator however right-wing they are in the this they do state that that was a solo run and i think they're probably right in that to be quite honest with you um, but you know what, there, you know, we have, we do have a, a saving grace here. There's an article here uh, about transport plans. This is one of the, the things, hopefully, they'll be on the Green Party's uh, wins that, that they've got. But uh, stricter rules drive up costs of uh, transport plans. Um, so the cost of some of the country's largest transport projects has soared. And it mentions, like, that stricter measures of actually assessing and accounting these um, means that there's going to be, like, a 25% uh, increase on some of the costs that they had originally tendered for and like they do mention obviously like the children's hospital in this and like the jump there from like what it was set out to be or whatever and it blames as well um that the main problem for the jump in these costs aside from the fact that they seem to be doing a bit more due diligence on actually uh, costing these things in the first place um is that construction uh, inflation has factored in um has doubled projects as well as that rigorous costing techniques applied and I think if and it goes back and then it goes on to talk about like retrofitting social housing and um, public buildings with energy efficient materials as well as part of what's going to be happening in some of the development projects. But I think there's there's still that lack of conversation. Like if they were talking about construction inflation, we're talking about public pro- projects here. Why are we not talking about a state-owned construction company? You know, there's so many things here that we're that we're talking about rising costs, uh, uh, construction inflations. Um, and we're talking about wanting to really commit to building public homes. But yep. we're, there is still yet to have a conversation about actually having that control, that we're not having, like, 
to worry about uh, the, the, what happened at the children's hospital again, where, you know, the, the public purse has been hit in a way that it wasn't expected. Um, because obviously we want we want these investments, we want the, the, the um, you know, the, these brilliant services. But how can we guarantee that these will be delivered in a, in a way that is best for the public purse without actually considering a state owned construction company ourselves and taking that into our own hands? When um, they say cost and inflation, they mean profit margins. Yeah. they've built in layers of profit margins that's constantly been and they're low ball and contracts at the start and then they're uh, high ball and the actual delivery and delay in it. it that's like capital uh you know and it's bargaining power and it's hold on and the state effectively subsidizing it absolutely and these, the these money. That, yeah and these tendering processes can be quite um quite long processes like so like to to go in on that low ball as you suggest and then like increases in different ways like they're not they can't go and they're not going to go and retender the process again because that is you know they're just going to have they just put up with it they just accept that oh yeah grand 25 percent increase in this this building cost like it's outrageous but um, i think it's a deeper the thing that's happening is that like the count at all levels of the state the infrastructure's been built that we need to subsidize the private sector to do these things uh, and back them up and there's no yeah it's a level of like power that's been built in that's incredible it's incredible in the housing the level of like moving from building to like hap uh for example is like subsidizing private landlords moving to multiple layers of private contractors rather than the council doing any of the work themselves that's like systematic um, and you're right like you can have the public provision of this but it has to be at all levels like the construction phase planning construction delivery and then maintenance and support for it um yeah Absolutely, absolutely. Is there any other stories that you want to come in on in there, Seamus? No, I think the recent stuff, the constant, the the monarchy royalist stuff uh, mixed in with the unionist stuff, I feel is a question of uh, the United Ireland being on the most reactionary basis they can imagine. So it's like bring back out the Catholic Church, the most reactionary elements of the Protestant Church, maybe even bring back the monarchy. Uh, and as socially conservative as possible. I think that's a lot of times when they're talking about reaching out. That's what Fine Gael mean by reaching out. And that's what kind of the right in the Republic mean. And it's kind of, uh, obviously it's not something that we can have a, a kind of progressive transformation uh, of the island. And it definitely doesn't need to be um, showing respect to the monarchy. I think there's a lot of people all across the island who don't necessarily agree with, uh, yeah, uh, hereditary wealth, uh sitting at the top of society is your figurehead yeah and i think there was a lot of discussion uh about the claire Byrne show during the week um where there was 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 it um eddie eddie o'sullivan o'sullivan eddie o'sullivan the former coach was it yeah former uh, came coach. on to to view his very strong opinions from twitter um about pvp's position to say that they wouldn't be wishing um they wouldn't be wishing Prince Philip any condolences on the basis that they don't support monarchy. Um, and yeah, he he tweeted saying that, you know, what what was it? He, something people, about... People before profit hate humans. They hate humans. Despite putting people before profit, profit. in their literal name, um, they hate humans because they wouldn't uh, offer condolences. Um, I know a lot of people, there was a lot of conversation about the, the particular show online. I tuned in for that particular segment to see what kind of a car crash it was myself. And uh, the, the guy, Eddie, couldn't even rub two bits of an argument together. Like, he had no argument. It was just, 
he was given this platform as this random guy on Twitter um, who did one tweet against people for profit. And the Claire Byrne Show deemed that um, suitable coverage for our current affairs, one of our main current affairs programs on public broadcaster was absolutely just like, I, I couldn't get over it. And um, I thought Breed um, held, was very calm and collected and put the argument across very well. But that Eddie lad couldn't, didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know what argument he was trying to make, only that it was anti, anti the ultra left is what I got anyway. Um, but he has, he has some very interesting um, followers himself on the right. So you can kind of see where his position is coming from um, and some of the language that he was using. So um, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. I think uh, I think the Claire Byrne researchers need to have a, a little think about um, what, how they're going to produce those shows going forward and what, who, what guests they bring on because I think they're losing a lot of faith in you know people trying to engage with that program for current affairs reasons. Yeah, it's a weird logic to put someone that bad on. It just, maybe is it a comfort thing to kind of rugby uh, coach? You know, it fits in with a certain worldview and version of Ireland that actually longs to be part of that slightly celebrity monarchist culture or something. They'd love to have a few more of those like little royals hanging out in uh, South Dublin somewhere. Um, that's a little bit harsh, maybe, and it might be the uh, like that controversy about the West Brit thing uh, years ago that Martin McGuinness gotten for. But it just feels like there's a little bit of a sock of towards some type of monarchist culture. I don't think most normal, ordinary people really give a shit about the what rich people are doing with their day to day life, and it's a definite step backwards to even think about. Um, accommodating them at all and it is incredible that RTE do I know I'm not I'm not surprised by them by RTE obviously and that kind of ecosystem but Jesus Christ it's bad yeah. like it just came across so clickbaity you know um, like yeah, that's, that, that's really what it was it was about driving the audience and I think you're dead yeah. right about you know um, was that was it that comfort thing was it about like we see we see our the rugby boys in there with the the English monarchy and perhaps the or like a lot of the RTE players as well you know who were found out for breaching a lot of the rules at the start it just seems to be like we are the the kind of you know we have different rules to other people a little bit and you know it's kind of hard to connect with them when uh, as a working class when you're you're you don't really see yourself in that really at all and you know they put our public broadcaster should be representing you know us as well you know it's not it's you know and it's just interesting um to to see that being played out and who who exactly was that show for yeah i mean it's almost shock jock-esque stuff from our public broadcaster it's not not almost it is and it's it's as you say rte's revenue is on the ground they're talking about layoffs and, and redundancies and and these they think this is the solution is to create these clickbaity style debates so-called debates they're not actually debates because who gives a shit if eddie o'sullivan former coach of the irish rugby team thinks that people before profit hate humans because it's just you know people before profit articulated and breed smith actually on the night because i heard clips of it she articulated her position very well so much so that eddie o'sullivan started to go oh well i sort of agree with that as well like so it it ended up that 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 we're all in agreement anyway so (laughs) What's the, what's the problem? But just on that, Seamus, you're going to love this article to talk talk about a step backwards. Um, Finnegale's Richmond says, a Commonwealth return would re- represent an olive branch to unionists. So he's talking about, you know, when we're talking about having a border poll and all the rest of it, why don't we just join the Commonwealth again? Um, 
And you could say that some, there's some people in the, on this island from a certain background and certain uh, belief system that wouldn't go, would go a lot further than just joining the British Commonwealth and would continue that trajectory towards back into the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. It's, um, it's yeah. a really interesting one. Are we a republic or not? Like, we are already, we're already at the tropes of some type of neo-colonial experience over the last, we never got complete independence and if you're going if you're going for the north my partner's family are protestant socialists and uh they hate thatcher and they hate the queen so i think you've got more of an appeal to some type of progressive tradition uh that unites the island and that deals with you know social economic things like getting an nhs for the whole island getting a proper keeping housing stock and building it out having yeah not not necessarily this worst version of things. So I think it's that is that is Finnegan's playbook. It's incredible that they're going to roll with that, and it's I think it's very short sighted by them. I can only see appeal to that in like a very small circuit of South Dublin, and maybe some type of respectability thing of narrowing the framework that we just line up with loyalists and unionists, the respectable unionists, not the rioting ones, the respectable ones who have money and you know drink whiskey in the evening on a, in a you know expensive glass or something we could have something in common with those uh, respectable people who are uh, reactionary and um, so yeah i don't it's, it seems like a bad playbook but this is the party now the respectable one uh, that that this week um have attempted to block the banning of um conversion therapies uh, yeah. and, and like and only a week before that, they were shutting off Joe Brawley for calling them uh, a racist, homophobic, sexist party or whatever, you know, and and apologizing. <laughs> this is, a, yeah, I mean, and let's let's be honest about it. It's a classist thing you're talking about there. Yeah. The, the rioting people are working class and that's yeah. what they don't want. They want the people yeah. who, as you say, sip the whiskeys and the, 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 the fine whiskeys, actually, not just the ordinary Jemsons that we'd have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it's uh, also, I think it's also a thing of just then like the, the movement like the feminist movement in the north as in the south has pushed the boundaries of what was perceived to be possible because it was always held that there was some type of binary that automatically there was a reactionary broad reactionary thing in the north but the conversion therapy seems like one that can be won by the left and um, you know and really continue to isolate the dup by doing that and that is based on the strength of you know alliance for choice and like um like community activists and feminists in the north so we have to kind of give credit to the movement over the last years that they've been fighting to back dup in that corner like yeah absolutely and just just on that as well there's there's an article in sunday times as well and um, that that's titled migrants may sway border poll i don't know if you read this one as well dave but um, it, it talks about the influx of uh, Hong Kong residents in Northern Ireland could help sway a border poll in favour of the union, a study of immigrants' uh, new national identities suggest. So it talks about how a lot of people who are, uh, that were born outside of the island um, would say that they're British or Northern Irish compared to 11% who would call themselves Irish. So it's just, it's just interesting. Um, it talks about like that, you know, the sense of being protected by the UK citizenship may have a strong emotion that would be matched to the loyalty of the state, its institutions and its constitutional arrangements. And um, yeah, it, it then talks about the how that would impact the vote for Irish unity. Um, but then the, the Ulster Union, a unionist councillor um, whose company has an office in Hong Kong, by the way, um, put forward a motion then calling for the council to plan ahead for refugees arrival. But 
I just found the article really odd as well. Like it talks about then a former Alliance MLA um, uh, words caution how she says the scenes of violence in our streets is going to, um, you know, that we're, it's going to take a huge, sophisticated and huge PR campaign to sell Northern Ireland to, to refugees and asylum seekers. Like what? To sell Northern Ireland? Like it's not a, it's not a marketing campaign that these, that people, that uh, like, for these like looking for refugee and asylum seeking from countries who political actors like deem more favorable for their agenda um in order for a border poll to be called like are you actually a suggestion yeah. to market the country to influence a border poll is that what's going on like it's conflating the interests of capital investment in the north with people uh you know who want you know housing health and a good job and not to be racially abused by uh you know, bigots in the north. So, like, it's it's incredible. And the lions fit with that. I know Conrad Casey on a double transition that moved to neoliberalism um, and kind of the the selling thing. It happens across the whole island in terms of our tourist like perception of Ireland. Come here and invest here and spend your money here. It's incredibly extractive. Um, and yeah, to conflate that with identity and all, like people have very complex reasons for supporting uh, a border poll, supporting United Ireland. But most of it does come down to what we need or want. What's going to be better for our kids or our future or, you know, um, yeah, kind of our material interests. So, yeah, it's it's an incredible one to be thrown out there. Yeah. And, and talking about that kind of like investing in, in Ireland, there, there's also another article as well where there's a concern over college fees and cash. Right. And it's talking about how RCSI are taking in fees and cash and that there's concerns there around like how that cash was obtained and all of this but like the, the, the thing that um struck me in this article was the college fees range from six grand a year to 56 grand a year so like they talk about yeah they took they took in like 67 grand in cash for fees last year right but sure that's probably what like one and a half fees for someone if someone if, if some of their fees are 56 grand a year in fees like it's just outrageous like and the article doesn't actually address the cost at all it just talks about the risk of uh, money laundering and talks about how other universities have confirmed they they take cash, but like the fact that they would take like considered absolutely normal behavior to ask someone for fifty six grand in fees, um, and it is it or CSI is mostly it's all it's just it's talking about international students that it's mostly international students that are paying cash and that they're wondering that if this is money from obtained illegally in other countries and all of this. But like the, the fact that we're actually using international students as cash cows to fund uh, our universities is the question that should be should be asked, whether it's cash or not. Like it's absolutely outrageous to think that there's actually courses in this country that you pay 56 grand a year to um, pay. Like I just, yeah. It's exploitative of the students and it's a really fundamental flawed business model. And it is a business model and that is, you know, yourself with education and like it is turning the third level sector, which should be, universal you know education and uh being able to learn and grow as young people or people of any age uh it's totally gone away from that kind of any of that type of ethos and uh ucd have that they're doing vanity projects in ucd which are so expensive and they won't pay you know precarious researchers or workers as a as a part-time researcher myself as my day job and yeah there's the, the pay the work conditions have been going down the students like amenities, the housing when they were when they built the student accommodation private as a cash cow thing, 
um, constant basis of exploitation and then you come out of an education system feeling just wrecked I guess worn yeah. out and used up and that's not what you're meant to go to and come out of education for like yeah absolutely and education shouldn't be a business model this constant marketization of education is absolutely like like harrowing to watch like we should be talking about education as a public good and how it benefits us and how you know it, it's just yeah it, I just couldn't get over that that particular article how it, it just again glosses over and how things are reported on around the fact that no one is reacting to the fact that there's someone people in this country are paying 56 grand a year for fees and RCSI and um, it's outrageous um, and there's actually another article as well in the Sunday Times around uh, um, education and um, Trinity Studies uh, it's links to the slave trade and obviously this is a conversation that's been happening after the back of the the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives uh, Movement. But um, yeah, it's just interesting that they're talking about renaming some of the buildings um, as part of their research and how they'd have to do it slowly, slowly to not upset some of their conservative uh, people in the on the campus. Um, and you know that it definitely wouldn't be a knee jerk reaction to a student campaign. It was actually stated in the article. Um, because yeah, and uh, but then American universities are being are, are talking about how students are involved, but there's no talk about how Trinity are getting students involved in this conversation at all. And um, but it's just very it's just very interesting, like because you know, it's it's it seemingly it seems like over the last four hundred years, like the Trinity has essentially benefited off the back of the fact that your man Berkeley anyway was very pro-slavery. He's linked to slaves, has his own slave. The library in uh, Trinity is named after him. Um, you know. And then during the week, I saw um, they've a new Pravas elected first woman, um, and the, there's also a female uh, SU president after being elected. And that was after you know they said there wouldn't be women. It was only in the hundred years ago they said that women wouldn't be allowed in that college. And you also had obviously then the Catholics weren't allowed in the into the college. Um, then you know in the what was that in the mid nineties? And yeah, and then like. To be honest, that the more pressing one that I've seen recently then is like the huge class divide in there as well. Like, and that's not something that's been captured either. Like, you know, Trinity has the highest amount of affluent students in that college, um, and the lowest from the lower uh, working class areas. And I suppose I'm while I'm happy to see them investigate their links to the slave trade and all, um, but there there definitely needs to be a class analysis done in this as well, where you know they have some serious serious uh underlying issues around like um that that perspective as well in the college just on that one right i'm a <laughs> little bit of a an honest um uh, coming forward here about my own family history and uh, my 12th great grandfather picked the site of trinity college actually a, a guy called adam loftus and uh, he was the dean of saint patrick's cathedral and the idea behind it, it's really interesting the idea behind it was that all of the protestants were were congregating and living all around the saint patrick's cathedral area so he picked trinity the other side of the city so that they could spread out protestantism and get rid of catholicism and this is the man who burnt the feet off the catholic archbishop um, murdering him by, by putting his feet literally into a fire. That's what Trinity is founded on, the back of those type of people and those policies of, of hatred. Um, yeah, I, I think Seamus wants to come in before I jump Ed, in. Uh, Ed, but Edmund Burke is one of the most reactionary characters influence on conservative thinking. Um, he said the French Revolution was gangsters and mobs that basically should be put down. He's got the, like, he's got, it, it fits with the character, you know? anything good about humanity is not resting Edmund Burke. Uh, so, 
Mm. It's all, I think it's all connected together. I think it's good that there's a pushback, like, um, and obviously it's coming more from Black Lives Matter in the UK who are pushing on the statues. And it's kind of interrelated to like that sense of exclusion in elite institutions that all feels quite connected. Um, as someone from Blanche who, uh, and parents from Longford, um, always felt intimidated by Trinity and what it was um, and what it symbolised. So, yeah, I think um, you, you, there's a big switch that would have to have an entire level to take out the elitism that's very entrenched in it, you know? Just to say, huge credit to you for what you did there. I spotted it. People in the UK pushing on the statues. <laughs> like that little <laughs> link. Because <laughs> they're literally pushing on the statues. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think are getting a bit afraid that, that some of their students might do the same there, do you know? <laughs> would love to see that, to be honest. Um, make Trinity a public space. Take down the statues we're not encouraging any type of vandalism we're just saying as an idea it'd be amazing you know <laughs> absolutely um, it mentions in the article as well they've quite they've quite a few historical manuscripts and artifacts that i believe people have protested around before so perhaps people will get the inspiration again once the conversation gets going yeah you See, just reminded me that really fucking annoys me about the book of kells like it's not even from trinity it has no background in trinity and i have to pay in to see a book that was written by a bunch of monks hundreds of years ago like um it's it's really annoying that that they get the revenue from something that was you know completely you know that didn't come from them whatsoever i'll just run through a couple of stories here there's there's one on the front page of the business post which is gonna you know rile up people but top civil servants in line for pay rise of almost forty thousand euros next year um second paragraph of the article talks about robert watt the acting secretary general of the department of health looks set to be pointed to the position on a permanent basis a move that means his existing salary of two hundred and twelve thousand euros the poor fella will now rise to 292,000 um euro so he's getting what is it just uh, an 80 grand only uh pay increase while other people are out of jobs and we can't have a solidarity tax you know it, this poor guy is on is going to be on 292,000 what's interesting is that the, and, and it's it's pulled up i think by uh Catherine Murphy social democrats co-leader said that the government were justifying this 292,000 euro salary by saying we want the biggest and brightest to apply for this position but the position is filled it's this what fella and he's going to be promoted so if he was happy to work for 212,000 why why are you increasing it to, to 292,000 because he wasn't looking for 292 when he applied to take the acting role so it's a good very good point and um, I have another one that I want to plug and far be it from me to plug other podcasts uh, <laughs> but um, there's a piece here by um, Daniel Murray an article based on the interview with um, Sinead Mercier. And for those who don't know, Sinead, Sinead's, um runs the helps run the ABCs of Green Politics podcast, part of the Left Block platform. Um, and it's a brilliant podcast. But this article um, is, is based on, as I said, a podcast that Sinead did under the five degrees of change. And it really gets to me that I have to say, like, plug a podcast that's actually sponsored by PwC. Like, so sorry about that, but maybe listen to it and then never listen to it again. Um, but Sinead is always worth listening to, to be honest. She's got really good points in this. And, um, you know, one of the headlines or quotes that they pulled out of it is, you know, we have allowed a system to build where the profits of energy companies have been translated in a, into a right to admit. Like, I'm no expert in green politics or what happens there, but she, she explains about some parts of this where they've created these uh, market mechanisms uh, to facilitate companies to choose the pollution reduction approach that best suits them. So one example she goes through in this article is, 
uh, off Ireland offsetting um, its carbon credits or whatever they're called, um, you can buy them off countries that have actually done the work. So Ireland doesn't reduce its its carbon emissions. What it does is it buys the credits off third world countries that have used austerity, perhaps in those countries, and we just buy it off them. Is there anything more, you know, first world, you know, oppression, you know, th- th- than doing stuff like that? We don't have to reduce us. We have we're a, we're a developed nation on the back, by the way, of, of slavery and all the other benefits that happened hundreds of years ago and built our infrastructure, right? And we're going to use all that finance and that economy that we built up to you know continue to destroy the planet and buy the carbon credits of other countries who are forced to take that regressive action in their own place and they've done all the hard work we get all the credit for it. i just it's a really interesting but really important article so have a look at that one if you if you are doing nothing today uh, daniel murray sunday business post and it's an interview with sinead mercier and listen to that podcast but more importantly listen to the abcs of green politics because they do really really good um analysis of, of of the economic and climate change system that are happening at the moment yeah that's that's really interesting i just think that concept of buying credits it, it means absolutely nothing let's just do the work put in the policies like get bring us a better draft of the climate action plan will you and we'll, we'll start working on this ourselves. None of this buying it out. We're already paying um, fines for not meeting climate targets as it is because, you know, like it's just, it's all, it's all, it's not a money game. Like this, you know, it's just bizarre. Um, New markets for, with, you know, accounting, pra- accountancy practices rather than sustainable development that's actually outside of that. It's uh, typical. And the civil servant thing is mad considering still the two-tiered entry-level pay and we haven't even recovered the, like, you know what I mean? That's just a very big thing for anyone between anyone entry level work or any of the first three grades uh, because everything gets tiered to that to the public sector pay in terms of any NGO or education jobs or anything. Um, and they're just going to top up the salaries of the top people instead. So, yeah, it's obviously there's a real class split again, you know, over that. I think we're seeing that as the, the overarching trend of our discussion on, on the news today, to be honest with you. Um, does anyone have any other articles that they'd like to touch on before we round up? It, it, it's not an article that I've actually gone into great detail on, but it's um, the one that was released yesterday. Paul who tweeted on his Twitter account, obviously. Um, but the double Irish, this is the quote from his tweet. The double Irish was abolished in 2015, but companies already using it could continue to use it until 2020. In 2019, Google used it to shift 63 billion euros in profits. Um, abso- he's saying absolutely ridiculous. Ireland let companies exploit a known tax loophole for so long. So I, I looked at the, um, when I saw that tweet yesterday, I, I, I looked at the total revenue of the Irish state from all taxes and levies in the same year, and it was 56.2 billion. So Ar- Ireland took in through VAT, income tax, corporation tax, added all up, levies, everything. We took in 56.2 billion. And one company exploiting that loophole was able to shift 63 billion, more than our entire revenue, shift that out so that they could avoid taxes. And that's the re- regressive nature that Ireland has on the rest of the world, because that's obviously if the taxes aren't paid here. Um, and we're helping to facilitate tax avoidance then third world countries and every other country in the world is, is suffering as a result of it but it's just it's incredible that you know it, that we're still doing that this this long into it and, and allowing and Google, for that. google's power like as a result the amount of money that they've been able to wash you know if you take them amazon facebook um it's a huge concentration of power like 
um, and in terms of their ability to influence then policies the way they want it in terms of the challenges of workers organizing as you know in those areas and sectors they've just got an incredible amount of resources there and they need to be they need to be tapered in even just in a very practical thing of improving you know uh people's quality of living they're just they're far too powerful um mm-hmm. absolutely and I think I'll round it up on that note. Um, Seamus, I want to say thank you very much for coming in um, on behalf of Katu. And thank you so much to my co-host, Dave. Um, This has been the Week at Work part of Left Block, a political education media project. And you can find more information for us or support us on patreon.com slash leftblock. We'll see you next week. Thank you.